0: We're already late. We have many things to discuss here today. Not not least of which is is I I also used to work for FERC a long time ago when I was a a, a mere little bureaucrat. And one of my favorite things about FERC is I got hired during the Jimmy Carter administration when we were deregulating natural gas. And in order to do that, we tripled the size of our staff. (laughs) This is government efficiency for you. (laughs) Anyway. Good afternoon, we have a great panel here today. My name is Ronald Bailey, I'm the science correspondent for uh, Reason Magazine. I'm sure everyone here is a subscriber. (laughs) No? Well, you should be. And uh, I'm going to be moderating this panel. So since we are here at Stanford, the home, if you will, of one of the world's leading doomsters just down the road here. I want to remind people, we're going to be discussing doom and environmental discourse, and and basically the rhetoric of doom, which is pervasive in environmentalist discourse. I want to remind people what uh, was said back in 1968, the battle to feed humanity is over. In the 1970s, the world will undergo famines, hundreds of millions of people are going to starve to death in spite of any crash programs embarked upon now. Well, he's nothing if not consistent. 22 years later, in the population explosion, he wrote one thing seems safe to predict starvation and epidemic disease will raise the death rates over most of the planet. Now, I was, at the time, a staff reporter uh, at at Forbes magazine. And I was writing a series of articles. And I called up Paul at the time. It was around 1990. And asked him, said, you know, back in 1968, you said the famines would happen in the 70s. And they didn't. so, you know, what happened? He goes, well, Ron, I got my timing wrong. I go, oh, okay. So there are going to be famines? Oh, yes, there will be famines uh, between 2000 and 2010. What year is it now? But he's consistent. He's just turned 90. He was on 60 Minutes. I don't know if you've managed to see this program, but just to brighten up our beginning of 2023, I and the vast majority of my colleagues think we've had it, that in the next few decades will be the end of the kind of civilization we're used to. This is pervasive, has been throughout, the entirety of, if you will, of environmentalism as a political ideological movement in the, in the United States and around the world. I've been fighting against this, and this is where I now try to sell books, some of them old. But for example, my 1992 book, Ecoscam, The False Prophets of Ecological Apocalypse, I go through Ehrlich and uh, famines and ozone. And then uh, I updated that for the end of doom three decades later. And still we hear that the end of the world is coming. So I've not been successful in persuading people about that yet. Our latest book, which of course everyone, I'm sure, has gotten a copy of, is my, my uh, 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 colleague, Marion Tupi, who runs the wonderful uh, and absolutely incisive website, Human Progress, which you should always go take a look at, filled with good data all the time. But in that I have a chapter where we describe why do themselves. I'm going to go very briefly through that uh, news is bad news i 'm a journalist I know that every time I try to do a, a optimistic story the editor goes now one will read that they want to know what's going wrong then there's the availability bias or heuristic then evolutionary caution that is basically our evolutionary psychology and then the problem of judgment creep um, so Uh, but about bad news. Why is it that we always focus on that? This was a a concept that was, uh, I thought, outlined pretty well by two peace researchers, Norwegian peace researchers, Johan Galtung and Murray Holmberg Ruga, in 1965. There's a basic asymmetry in life between the positive, which is difficult and takes time, and the negative, which is much easier and takes less time. Compare, for example, the amount of time needed to build a house versus the amount of time to destroy it in a fire. Again, steady progress is not news, the fact that a house burned down is news. Um, then, of course, there's the problem of what, what gets to be news. Well, a man bites a dog, that's news. That's a, it's a cliche. I also think that a news reporter eaten by a dinosaur would be news as well. But uh, I, I also hope that that doesn't happen very often. In any case, the problem is we're all very smart people in this room, and we're voracious consumers of information. We read newspapers, listen to NPR. We're always listening for, for news. The problem is that news is always bad news. So when we start to think of something, we always think of things are going wrong, that they're bad. And this is the idea of the availability heuristic was come up by Tversky and Kahneman in the 1970s. So we end up with a a mental shortcut for misjudgment, where we believe that all we can easily call to mind is reality, and that's always the bad news, which then distorts the real probabilities. Then, of course, we are descendants of scared people, uh, like this fellow in this cartoon here. He was hearing a rustle in the grass, and he goes, you know, that could be a saber-toothed tiger. He ran away. We are his descendants. The guy who said, no, nah, it was just a win, we don't see him. He's gone. He made no, he created no descendants. So basically, we have a glitch in our evolutionary psychology to, again, focus on things how things can go bad, much more easily than how things can go good. We can think about the tiger that might get us and forget about the fruit tree over the hill. That can be thought about tomorrow. And then there's the problem of judgment creep. And this is some work done by uh, social psychologist Daniel Gilbert at, at Harvard and his colleagues. And he noted in a study, when problems become rare, we count more things as problems. Our study suggests that when the world gets better, we become harsher critics of it. And this can cause us to mistakenly conclude that it hasn't gotten better at all. Progress, and I want to stress this, it seems tends to mask itself. Again, we take our winnings, we go, great, Now, we don't have to think about those anymore, and we only look out for future losses again. And this is, again, another psychological problem we have. Why doom sells is because people are always trying to figure out what's going to get them, what's going to hurt their family, what's going to hurt their society. And they focus on that and forget about all the progress that's been made. And and therefore, think that, uh, that well, therefore, environmentalist doom is a way of selling uh, a particular program. So but to solve this problem, we have on our panel here two very distinguished scholars who are basically going to tell us how we can counter environmentalist doom. Uh, We have Stephen Koonin here, who uh, is a theoretical physicist, had worked for the Department of Energy as the uh, Undersecretary for Science under the Obama administration, and has written a fabulous book, Unsettled, uh, on climate change. And then we have Neil Ferguson, who uh, I noticed the title. My book was the title. Of the end of doom, apparently he is in favor of it. But anyway, uh, the politics of catastrophe. Who is a fellow here at the Hoover Institution and an author of 16 other books, and you know he's been on PBS. He's very famous. So uh, both of <laughs> so we will be hearing how they're going to counter this problem and how to fix the problem of, of rhetoric, uh, of environmentalist rhetoric, with if you will, reality. So first we're going to be listening to Stephen. So, great, Ron.
1: Um, let's see if we can pull up my charts. Nope.
0: I'm not in control.
1: <laughs> can, can we get my deck up? Nope. All right. There we go. All right, good. <laughs> great. So as we heard at the very beginning of this uh, workshop this morning, Any form of climate action has got to strike a balance, a balance between the hazards and risks of a climate changing for whatever reason against the world's growing demand for reliable, affordable, and clean energy. That balance gets conditioned by values, priorities, the efficacies of various strategies. It is very easy to tip that balance by exaggerating the threat or by minimizing the need for energy. Misinformation is the tool for doing that. And it is pernicious and endemic in political discourse. I give example here uh, about the debate for the Affordable Care Act. Whatever you think about that, Jonathan Gruber, whom I'm sad to say is an economist at MIT, one of the architects of that act when he was working with Washington, said lack of transparency was a huge political advantage. And getting the act passed, we've relied on a basic exploitation of the lack of economic understanding of the American voter. I would assert that the same thing is happening with climate science. Misrepresentation to persuade people rather than inform them takes away the right of the public to make fully informed decisions. It distracts from more urgent needs. And boy, do we have many of those. It tarnishes the scientific inputs to other societal matters, like pandemics. And we have, in this case, unreasonably depressed young people. There are many motivations for misinformation. The media, as we just heard from Ron, fact-checkers whose business it is to suppress an accurate depiction and promote a narrative. Politicians and the government. I love this quote from H. L. Mencken, basically, who said the purpose of politics is to keep everybody alarmed so that the government has license to take action in industry. We had a long discussion about stakeholders. When I talked to CEOs of companies, they agree with very many things that I've said and have been said here, but feel beholden to stakeholders lest they get canceled. The NGOs, an accurate depiction of climate science is an existential threat to them. Here's an example from the Climate Imperative that was publicized recently, an NGO advocating for climate action. The truth is known, and it is sobering. The climate is in crisis. The consequences of inaction are extreme, irreversible, and already being deeply felt. Well, we'll look at some data and some official science that doesn't quite align with that. The scientific societies, including the IPCC, continuity of patronage, including the National Academies of Science, individual researchers, the motivations of funding, prominence, societal acceptance. And there is a receptive audience among non-experts because of the complexity and nuances of climate and energy, and because of, as Ron just mentioned, we're more attuned to threats than anything else. The tactics, when you start to understand these tactics, uh, you become attuned to them. It's very easy to spot them. Sloppy nomenclature that confuses climate change, which is a change in response to human influences, to, uh, I'm sorry, which is a change in, due to any causes versus the UN's climate change, as we heard several times in this workshop a change due only to human causes. Terms like denier or alarmist, 97% of scientists agree. Weasel words in the popular media. Might, could be, as much as, are projected to be, cannot be ruled out. Extreme scenarios framed as business as usual. And lack of context. When you separate text from context, all that remains is a con. If you don't mention uncertainty, any statistical significance, set a scale for very large or very small numbers, no mention of historical comparisons. I remind you, weather is one or two years at best, climate is ten years or more. <laughs> It's very easy to see this artifice in the assessment reports. Here is the most recent U.S. government report, the Climate Science Special Report of about four years ago. They say in the report, sea level globally rose at a considerably faster rate, 1993 to 20 17 than the 1990, uh, the average from 1900 to 1990. They give you no figure. And when you look at the research papers they cite, that's what the sea level did. And you can see it goes up and down a lot. But if you average over most of the 20th century, the variation goes away. We don't have much explanation for that variation, by the way. Same report on heat waves. The frequency of heat waves has increased since the mid-1960s. The Dust Bowl remains a peak period of extreme heat. But when you look at what actually the heat waves did, yes, they did increase from 1960, but they were higher in the early part of the 20th century. If you look at a previous US government report on hurricanes, they say hurricane activity has increased since the early 1980s. But when you look at the full record as compared to what they show you in the report only, it's not particularly unusual. And in fact, the IPCC says it's very hard to find any long-term trends in hurricanes. Here's a more recent example, this story came out last week, parts of Greenland are now hotter than at any time in the past thousand years. Big headline in the Washington Post. There's the data from the paper. There was actually a cooling trend up until 1800 and then the warming started. That's interesting and significant, because human influences have been significant only since about 1940 or so, 1950. Why did it start warming in 1800? We don't know. And then when you look at the data for the last 200 years from the paper, yes, in fact, the last decade or two has been the warmest, but it's part of a surge, and there have been similar surges earlier in the record. So you might, in fact, well wonder, is it going to come down again? Is it already coming down? the temperature. You can see that by looking at Greenland melt, another example for which we have pretty recent data. The Guardian in December 2019 said, Greenland's ice sheet is melting seven times faster than in the 1990s. I got a lot of people mad when in February, about a year ago, I published the actual data. And yes, in fact, it does go up rapidly from 1990 to 2010. But that was pretty much the same 80 years ago. And if you look at the most recent decades, it's actually coming down again. This has got very little, if anything, to do with human influences, its natural variability in the Atlantic Ocean. And the betting is it will continue to go down again. And then The Guardian's going to have some explaining to do in about five or 10 years. Sea level, another scare phenomenon. The most recent IPCC report obscures sea level variability. That's the graph from the Summary for Policymakers. It's hard to see anything has happened historically, other than that as we go into the uh, end of this century, it's going to go up. They say, in fact, global mean sea level increased by so much between 1901 and 2018. The average rate was 1.3 millimeters between 1901 and 71, increased to 1.9 between 71 and 06, and is further increasing. So here's the graph of the actual Again, rate of rise from one of the papers they cite. And look what they did. They said the average rate from 1901 to 1971 was that much obscuring the variability in the early 20th century. Then they said it was that much, and now it's that much. So you can hide all of this depending upon how you phrase things. It's really important to look at the data, which means looking at the figures. And in fact, the previous IPCC report acknowledged that it's likely that there were similar high rates between 1920 and 1950. If we don't understand the past variability, we have much less confidence in extracting human influences from recent trends. Projections are also, if you publish a graph, you can get people mad. This is the rate of sea level rise at the battery in Manhattan, the tip of Manhattan. NOAA data. And it's how much sea level rises every 30 years from 1920 to 2010. And it kind of goes up and down. It averages the equivalent of three millimeters a year, which was already mentioned. That's a foot a century if you convert to English units. And it's been pretty much that on average throughout the last 100 years, the more recent decade has gone a little high. NOAA published a prediction, a prediction actually, not a projection or forecast, that it's going to go up by a foot by 2050. That's extraordinary. I can't say if NOAA is wrong or not, but we'll know pretty quickly uh, whether this is a valid prediction or not. What they did was, of course, just take the last couple decades and draw a straight line ignoring all of the uh, variation beforehand. That's dishonest. More misrepresentation of warming trends. Let me not go through that. Uh, Pakistani floods in 2022. The Pakistani environmental minister gets on in September after the floods and said, this is the worst since 1961. Well, all you got to do is look up the record of the monsoon. Here it is. This goes out to 2021. 2022 came in at 12%. And you can see, in fact, 1961 was pretty high, but there was plenty of intense monsoonery going on in the early 20th century. The Pakistani floods were particularly destructive this year because they've denuded all of the mountains uh, of trees. And so the runoff was much stronger. And there were many more people living in the floodplains this time than in 1961. So we hear a lot from the politicians about climate crisis, climate existential threat, emergency disaster, and so on. Guterres, a year ago, a bit more said, code red for humanity. This year he said, we're on a highway to climate hell with our foot still on the accelerator. Well, he's a politician. He doesn't know anything. His job is to get people to act. But people like Bill Gates, Ernie Moniz, know better. Nevertheless, you still hear those words from them. Secretary of Defense Austin, also not a scientist. What does he know? Well, if you read the reports, it doesn't say that at all. These are climate damages due to, sorry, weather damages over the last 30 years globally, and they amount to about 0.2 to 0.3% of GDP. The last year was a little higher, but it goes up and down. The trend is actually declining, as we've already mentioned. So the world is, at the moment, not in an economic climate crisis. When you ask about future projections, the next most recent IPCC report said very explicitly, for most sectors, the impact of climate change will be small relative to the impacts of other drivers. And they gave us a graph that said a few percent of impact on GDP in 2100 for a few degrees of temperature rise. Hardly existential. The most recent IPCC report says we have low confidence that there's anything more than those estimates. Nevertheless, the US government in 2018 puts out a report that says in the absence of mitigation, climate change is projected to impose substantial damages growing to hundreds of billions by the end of the century. Well, if you're numerate, you realize hundreds of billions for the US economy is not a big deal at all. It's about how much the economy grows every year. Report was designed to induce headlines, and it did. NBC News says climate change will wallop the economy. Even Fox News said climate report warns of dim economic consequences. It is entirely unethical for scientists, people who understand, to tolerate this. How's it going to get fixed? I found that writing cogent, referenced, written refutations, simply referring to the data or the original reports, and including a killer figure. I put a report, uh, an op-ed about sea level rise in the journal a couple weeks ago. That figure says everything. I had a similar figure for Greenland. It's possible, it's like shooting fish in a barrel. There are so many reports that you can, or media perceptions that you can Refute. Formal debates. I've done four formal debates against credible opponents in the last couple months. Oxford style, I have won them all just by putting out the data, not only about the climate, but about the energy system. I would love to see a red team scrub of the assessment reports, and in particular, the summaries for policymakers. I don't think it's going to happen. The governments are too entrenched in this. And then finally, I think it's going to fix itself. I think we're headed down a rapid, large-scale path to decarbonization that is going to be extraordinarily disruptive and expensive. The realities will take over, as they do for Wile e. Coyote, and people are going to start to ask, tell me again why we're doing all of this, and take a much harder look at the science. Thanks for your attention.
0: Right. I think you'll have to pass me Oh, the, indeed.
1: Can, can, can you see the, the monitor? Yeah. Okay.
0: Well, uh,
2: I feel a bit like Wiley Coyote myself, actually, coming on after Steve Coonan. I'm not a, a scientist. I'm a historian. Uh, but it's true that I wrote a book called uh, Doom. And uh, the point of that book was uh, to think about the politics of, of catastrophe. And so what I'm going to do is really complementary to what Steve's just done. I'm not going to get into uh, the data on climate change. Rather, I'm going to say, well, uh, let's uh, imagine that it's true that there's a problem. What are the implications for our discourse? And I'm hoping that when I press this button, uh, my first slide will appear. So, I thought I'd begin by just explaining where I I stand. Uh, Steve's already alluded to the IPCC uh, uh, since 2013. Uh, the perception certainly exists uh, that its uh, worst-case scenario is got more probable. That's the way in which the media tends to present the IPCC because journalists read the executive summaries, as you know, Steve, rather than the and the content. And the story is that unless uh, drastic measures are taken, uh, then not only will average temperatures continue to rise, but so will uh, will precipitation and so will sea levels. Now, our friends Bjorn Lomberg and, and Michael Schellenberger have argued that this is a relatively slow-moving problem, and that uh, the key question is a, a kind of cost-benefit analysis of appropriate mitigation measures. And they warn, I think not unreasonably, that there are a number of proposed measures, as Steve just suggested, that would in fact cost more than the benefits that they, that they would confer. Now, I don't take them to be saying uh, there's no problem, and I don't take them to be saying that we should do nothing. I think I take them to be saying that we need to think very carefully about what is the appropriate premium to pay as insurance against uh, catastrophic change, which has some non zero probability. Whatever the causes of climate change, it's certainly not difficult to imagine considerable disruption. And I cite a couple of papers here. It's obvious that if this scenario is right and the IPCC acknowledges it, it won't be evenly distributed. There'll be very different impacts in different parts of the world. And it would be quite unreasonable to imagine a future in which Africa has a benign outcome given the combination of likely climate change and rapid population growth. So as an historian I'd be very surprised if in this century there weren't considerable migration. I don't think it's mass death that one needs to be concerned about but large-scale migration from those parts of Africa with rapid population growth and increasingly poor outlook for agricultural or economic development generally. So that's roughly where I stand. I'm not going to get into the kind of data that's Steve's already so expertly presented. Where I draw the line is at predictions of the end of the world. And the reason I draw the line is that as an historian, I'm quite familiar with millenarian movements. Throughout history, there's been a fascination with the end of the world. It is central to the great religions. uh, And we shouldn't be too surprised to find this preoccupation with the end of the world resurfacing in secular form in our time. Uh, And here we can pick a few choice quotes. Uh, You're probably all familiar with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's warning in 2019 that the world would end in 12 years. We have less and less time left, if that's right. Greta Thunberg, uh, three years ago, came to Davos and gave a very strident uh, speech. We don't need a low-carbon economy, she said. We don't need to lower emissions. Our emissions have to stop. Any plan or policy that doesn't include radical emission cuts at the source starting today is completely insufficient. We must immediately halt all investments in fossil fuel exploration and extraction. Now, history as Gibbon understood is is rich with irony and that's what's appealing about the study of human history irony because almost immediately Greta Thunberg's wish was granted though not in a way that she had anticipated as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic that had already begun when she was speaking at Davos it was in fact the case that emissions were drastically reduced, beginning in China uh, and then in Europe and finally in North America. In early 2020, we ran Greta Thunberg's experiment. We drastically reduced emissions, and uh, the results were remarkable. This paper was published in 2020 showing that in successive areas where lockdowns were imposed, emissions drastically fell. And you might have thought that this was Greta Thunberg's wish coming true, but of course there was a catch. The catch is that if you immediately cease emissions of greenhouse gases, you also leave the population unemployed because you've shut down manufacturing industry. Uh, the economists here will remember the extraordinary surge in unemployment inevitably associated with policies that closed large parts uh, of the economy down. So this was a natural experiment to illustrate the consequences of taking uh, Greta Thunberg and other alarmist uh, prophets of doom Literally, we found out in 2020 exactly what happens when you do immediately reduce emissions the world economy stops Larry Summers, once my boss at Harvard, at the end of, of 2020, towards the end of 2020, tried to estimate the likely cost of the pandemic. This is a very interesting paper. I underestimated the, uh, the cumulative death toll to the end of 2021. Uh, they estimated the cost of the pandemic, taking all of the different costs, including even impacts on mental health, at about $16 trillion. That was, quote, approximately the estimate of the damages, such as from decreased agricultural productivity and more frequent severe weather events, from 50 years of climate change. I thought that was a very startling illustration of the difference between one form of disaster and another. As I was trying to explain in 2020 at the World Economic Forum, a pandemic is really much worse than climate change. And yet at that particular conference, the Global Risk Report published just before it, listed as the top five risks, only climate-related risks, and made no mention of a pandemic as a potential global risk. In fact, they hadn't talked about pandemic as a risk in that report since 2008. The most inconvenient truth of all is that the Western developed economies have been reducing energy-related emissions of carbon dioxide for years. So the calls for reductions have been heeded for more than two decades. If you just look at uh, the United States since 2000, there's been a drastic reduction 1,000 million tons of carbon dioxide uh, less were emitted in 2021 than in 2000. The European Union has also increased, decreased emissions. The most startling fact of all is the increase in emissions by China, an increase that exceeds the reduction by both the United States and the European Union combined. It's an increase of about 216%. Uh, And this is the most inconvenient truth of all that consistently gets omitted from debates, whether they're at Davos or Aspen. If you really believe that reducing carbon dioxide emissions is the most important thing we need to do. If that is your conviction, and it's clearly a conviction that is now held by the majority of governments and major corporations, you have to constrain China. Delivering sermons at Davos is an entirely futile activity because the reductions are already happening uh, in the West, but they are not happening in Asia. One could say the same uh, of India, but I want to focus in conclusion on China. China's responsible for two-thirds of the 32% increase in carbon dioxide emissions since Greta Thunberg was born, and a staggering 93% of the 39% increase in coal consumption. Ever since I took an interest in this debate, I have been fascinated by the reluctance of Al Gore and Greta Thunberg to take their message to Beijing, where it is most urgently needed if you accept that this is the principal existential threat that we face. Until I hear at one of the endless uh, conferences on this subject a clear articulation of how the world will constrain China if it doesn't abide Uh, by its somewhat weak pledges, until I hear a discussion about how exactly this is going to be achieved, I won't believe that the prophets of doom are serious. And I'll conclude that far from seeking a meaningful change in global energy policy, in reality they simply want to do what millenarians have been doing through the ages, and that is to chill us and fill us with fear about an impending apocalypse, the probability of which they vastly exaggerate. Thank you very much. Good. Oh, yeah. Yeah. the punchline. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of the ironies I mentioned that history was an ironic subject is that the alarm which young people are made to feel on this subject leads them to disastrously erroneous inferences of which the most pernicious is as illustrated by this 2020 European poll that authoritarian states are better equipped than democracies to tackle the climate crisis. It will be One of history's most beautiful ironies if it turns out to be the authoritarian states that cause it. And that was the punchline. Thank (laughs) you very much indeed. Good.
0: Well, I will take one question, moderator's privilege, I suppose. And what. I'm concerned about since we're talking about climate in this particular situation. Is I've made the the claim, and I don't know that Terry agrees with me on this. Terry Anderson agrees with me on this, but I think the, I'll make this assertion that wherever anyone in this room thinks that they've identified an environmental problem of any sort, I will argue that it's taking place in an open access commons. That is, there's no one owns it, and anyone can add whatever pollutant they would like to it, and the problem the problem is that, as people, who those of us who appreciate markets, the way we can do this is enclose these commons by assigning property rights, and that and that usually is, is our, our go-to solution for these things, or if we have to, we regulate it. My question is, to how do we enclose, or do we need to enclose, the global atmospheric commons? Well, um, you know that would
1: require international cooperation. I in those meetings. In the face of centrifugal forces that are overwhelming, I want to expand Neil's take on China to the entire developing world. There's six and a half billion people outside of the OECD, and their energy use will increase strongly as they develop. That's just the way societies work, historically and across countries. Right now, fossil fuels are the most reliable and convenient way to get them that energy. The inequalities are astounding. There are 3 billion people in the world who use less electricity every year than the average US refrigerator. And there are people in Nigeria who use one thirtieth the energy per capita that we do in the US. Many people, Alex Epstein may be most prominently among them, have asserted it is immoral to deny those folks the energy that they need to improve their lot. And until you can get a solution to
0: that, you're going to see emissions go up. So no. No. Is the <laughs> OK. <coughs> and do you think that we can enclose a global commerce? Do you have any hope well, for that? The
2: The problem really is that if you try and take the approach that that assigns appropriate property rights, you run up against the fact that a a fifth of humanity lives under a regime in which property rights are entirely contingent on the will of the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party. And it seems to me that that's the central problem. The reason I emphasize China is just that it is by far and away the largest of these economies. uh, With a a huge, albeit now stagnating, share of the global population. And the fascinating uh, thing about the Chinese Communist Party is that we don't really, uh, or we shouldn't really believe, uh, that it's sincere about reducing its emissions, because that is not its priority. Its priority is to remain in power. And it will do whatever it is necessary uh, to remain in power, including a ditching a failed uh, non-pharmaceutical solution uh, to the pandemic that it caused. Hmm. So at the heart of this debate is the credibility of the CCP's commitments. And I I can't help feeling that anybody who still believes in those pledges uh, could easily be sold a large bridge uh, because that just
0: seems highly unlikely to me. Uh, I, I, I attended something like 15 to uh, 17 of the, uh, the uh, climate change cops. Yep. So UN meetings are an acquired taste. That is masochism uh, <laughs> above and beyond the call <laughs> it, of duty. It, it is, but one of the things I've noticed, to your point, though, is the environmentalist community, the NGO community, does tend to treat China with kid gloves. They go after Europe. They go after the United States. But China is just off limits. It's kind of we could speculate about why that might be. We could. But one other final question: Then, can doom be oversold? in this particular context. Uh, Penn State climatologist Michael Mann, who is someone who's very concerned about climate change, now says that climate doomism has become far more of a threat than climate change denialism. Yeah. I, I would,
1: I, you know, it's great that Michael has come around to that, um, which is different than what he was saying before. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, Jim Hansen is another one who hasn't quite uh, backed off yet. But I would amend what Michael said precipitous climate action is a greater threat than climate change.
0: Can doom be oversold? Can we, or, this, is, or is this a commodity that renews itself constantly? I mean, the central point of, of
2: the book Doom is that we are fascinated by doom. There's always a market for the end of the world, whether it's going to come as a result of overpopulation uh, or uh, or climate change. Uh, if you don't believe me, look at the Doomsday Clock, which is <laughs> is always three seconds before midnight. Uh, these they days, they moved it
0: closer to midnight this past
2: month. Uh, I mean, I, I think the, the problem for rational actors trying to devise energy policies that strike that balance that Steve very rightly be- began with is that it's extremely difficult to have a rational debate when millenarian prophets are at the door, yeah. uh, and one must recognise this quasi-religious quality of, of the debate. Uh, so, yeah, the overselling of doom has the downside that it makes rational policy making on energy extraordinarily, extraordinarily difficult. And that's unfortunate because it strikes me that in the end, the outcome, whatever it is, uh, will, will not be evenly distributed. Uh, And I think any of us who who are serious about reducing global inequalities, addressing the plight of the people who are poorest in the world, that's in large measure the population of sub-Saharan Africa, can only look on in dismay as policies are adopted that seem highly unlikely to work and indeed are quite likely if they put up in the short run the cost of energy to develop country consumers to generate a backlash. The worst thing about doom-mongering in almost any domain is that it leads... First, to unrealistic expectations, and then to disillusionment. And I think that was what you were alluding to, Steve, a moment ago. Yeah, yeah. Green New Deals almost certainly boil down to rising short-run rises in costs of, of energy to, to develop. Yeah. So, uh, so not
1: only do you deny the developing countries a reliable, affordable energy, but you also deny them the ability to exploit their fossil resources by not letting them or not providing Investment in whether it's oil or gas. Right. And Uh, then you raise energy costs. And they know that. If you listen to the leaders, Modi, the president of Niger, they're all saying carbon colonialism. How dare you
0: to use a phrase? Well, uh, (coughs) excuse me, now it's time to turn to the the audience. Well, you, sir. Uh, Is there a mic? Right there. Please.
1: Well, the topic. Can you hear me? Uh, the topic is rhetoric, and, and I've had a lot of conversations with people on the
3: alarmist side, and I just, I mean, and I'm a fact-based
1: person, and you are, and you've done a great job of presenting the facts. My sense is, people don't want to hear facts if they've already made up their mind. Yeah. I mean, you can talk about things, and they'll just say, hey. Yeah, I want. I want to believe in the dude. Yeah.
0: What do you do about?
1: it? So Wiley Coyote didn't want to hear about gravity either, but it eventually, you know, <laughs> plays out.
0: Is there a way to actually change that in your mind? Uh, boy, I wish. Look. I, above my pay grade all right I I, if I I may intervene one of the things I've discovered over the years of reporting on this and part of the reason I highlighted Paul Ehrlich is the fact is we hardly ever hear about overpopulation as on the front pages of the newspaper even the New York Times has had articles claiming that this is not going to be the problem for for the 21st century anymore so eventually the facts do come to the fore and people set aside that problem and then they go we have to think of another problem but so I don't don't think that overpopulation doom sells nearly as much as it used to there are still obviously pockets of it around but i do think that we can point to some success in that regard of overcoming those particular profits of, of doom you were right oh
2: sorry there's, there's a question the gentleman
3: at the back has the microphone uh, oh. Gentlemen, thank you. Uh, it, it's
0: thank Terry.
3: You were right. I do uh, disagree with you, uh, but uh, be, for a very different reason than you might expect. Uh, you started saying, Do we need to somehow close the commons? The commons, in some sense, is closed, and that's what the adaptation session was about. In the introduction to the Adapt and Be Adept book that uh, Hoover Press published, I used a phrase. I've used in many articles I've written, uh, viewing the world through coast-colored glasses, uh, obviously referring to Ronald Coase and his uh, uh, excellent education that he gave economists on, on w- what property rights mean and how they affect uh, the kinds of problems we're talking about here. The property rights to land and many of the risks associated with with uh, climate change, at least in this country, are pretty well defined. As and in a sense, the property rights to emit are pretty well-defined. I can go out and start my Ford diesel F-250 and I have a right to do that. That might change, they might get redistributed, but the result of that may may change sea levels, it may affect property values in in uh, Miami, but The fact of the matter is there is the built-in incentive through property rights, the ownership of those properties to adjust. Let me put it in the context of something that's very well known in the American West. Fence them in or fence them out. That refers to cattle. If you live in the county in which I live, it's fence them out. And if you go and build your house out where there are lots of cattle grazing, it's up to you to fence them out or adapt, if you will you want to protect your your tulips put a fence around them that's adaptation and It's because the property rights to the tulips are clear and the property rights to whosoever cattle are grazing are also clear. You have a right to the commons, if you will. So I think, back to adaptation, it's clear property rights that are crucial. And you're going to see more adaptation in the places where the property rights are better defined, the rule of law is better defined, and people have more incentive to uh, react to the risks of climate change Thank
4: you. Uh, this was a, a wonderful set of talks and, and I think you brought us right to the edge but then you stopped and I want to encourage you to keep going and here's where you stopped uh, Neil said they want to scare us but he didn't say why they want to scare us you both noted that they are critical of the US and Europe which are uh, lowering climate but don't want to talk about China and you both said we don't want to talk about why that's true And then Steve said uh, the danger is a a precipitous policy, and I I don't think that's the answer. So let me offer an answer to all three questions. Uh, which is perfectly clear if you listen to what they say. This is not just to scare us and it's not just a religious movement It is a political movement. The purpose of this is to scare us into handing them power And let's go back to the ESG where we started they read the IPCC reports read the ESG They're perfectly clear on what they want climate and the whole long list of progressive causes Read the IPCC reports and and the 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 sentence which is the the subject of the sentence Which is never mentioned is we are going to run all this thing for you. The danger is the danger of loss of democracy to technocratic institutions who think they can run everything and, and who have to run everything if this is the way it's going to be. A crony capitalist and economically stagnant uh, a stagnant war, um, Western economy. That's the point, and it seems to me that's the danger.
2: I'm more optimistic, John, about, about democracy. If, if there is that kind of a project, I don't think it stands much chance of succeeding, precisely because the more radical the steps taken, the more extreme the Green New Deals, the quicker the backlash comes. And that backlash may ultimately be counterproductive in its own way, but it seems highly likely that a systematic effort to raise the cost of energy for households will fail politically. For the obvious reason. It's quite a regressive tax and there are quite a lot of people that will object to it. I was also struck listening to Al Gore at Davos uh, earlier this month by the diminishing returns problem that the prophets of doom have. And I'm reminded of uh, the great uh, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore sketch in Beyond the Fringe about the end of the world. If you keep predicting the end of the world, the Paul Ehrlich problem, if you insist, as Al Gore did the other day, that the oceans are boiling... The average person observes that the oceans are very far from uh, boiling. And I think the credibility of the millenarian cult is is waning. So I'm much less concerned about this than, than you, John. I think the truth is that the, the project will fail, and it will fail politically within the next decade.
1: So I, I like to cite um, Anthony Downs, who wrote this wonderful paper in 1972, up and down with ecology, the issue attention cycle. And he talks about environmental issues. It was pollution in those days, local pollution. Um, You know, the, the problem bubbles along among experts until it bursts into public consciousness. That's phase two. Phase three is great enthusiasm for solving the problem. Phase four is everybody realizes, gosh, this is going to be really hard. And then the issue fades. And I think we're somewhere between the really hard and fading of the issue.
0: I would like to also agree with uh, what uh, Mr. Cochran said here, is basically there's, there's a wonderful book by Naomi Klein called This Changes Everything, mm-hmm. Capitalism Versus the Climate. And, and it, 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 that explains everything. Basically, she writes in the book is, finally, we have something that is so bad about capitalism, we could use that to ride in and change the entire economy, transform the world oh, in yeah. a way that we progressives have been hoping to do for decades. That's this lady from Harvard, right? Uh, no, actually, so he, uh, no, Naomi Klein is a journalist. Uh, oh, different a, Naomi. Naomi Klein, Klein, yes, yeah. Na, she's, okay. she's a Canadian journalist. Yeah. Yeah. In any case, she makes it very clear what the goal is, capitalism versus the climate. One more question? Do we get to go over? We got started late. We did. get more. Okay, good. If I,
2: oh, sorry. If I could just push back a little on the pushback. Um, here in California, we're living the dream already. <laughs> we have very, you know, staggeringly high rates and costs. We have enormous waste in these programs, uh, and we have uh, a legislature and a governor who are reliably reelected to do more of the same. So I guess I'm curious, being ahead of the curve here, uh, if you could point to where the pushback may already be
1: developing. So so you have a net out-migration of people, of businesses, people are voting with their
2: feet? Yeah, I mean, I think the only surprising thing is that it isn't larger. Uh, my sense is that this goes back to what I was saying to John. Uh, It's bad news if an authoritarian regime decides that uh, it's essential to price carbon at a certain price. It can do that. Uh, It's extremely hard, actually, for a a democratic system to embark on large-scale social and economic engineering if the costs are going to be borne uh, by the electorate. Uh, And in a federal system, the option to move is extraordinarily powerful. Montana offers a somewhat different... Uh, prospect, and it's really not that far. Weather's going to improve this week, I checked.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs>
2: I have a question about uh, financial markets and whether they can be used to help reveal truth. Um, if you believe the efficient market hypothesis, and I think the ESG panel sort of suggested we should, and I, I do, uh, then financial prices ought to be scrubbed of this kind of bias that you've referred to. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if there's some price I can look at out there in the world in a financial market to reveal the, the, the correct thinking about climate, future climate damages. Well, um, I'm sure Steve has an answer, but I'll go first. If you had two years ago, let's say, decided uh, that you would restructure your portfolio uh, to be an ESG portfolio, uh, you would not have done terribly well. Uh, if your arch rival uh, had decided to do the exact opposite uh, and invest in hydrocarbons particularly in coal uh, that would have been a, a that would have been a great trade and so markets have in fact spoken quite quite clearly and what markets said is The Asian world in particular is going to have a continued and growing need uh, for coal and, and oil. So that's what the market is saying. To which, of course, Mark Carney would reply, and that's what we have to fix. Right. That's how we have to—we have to intervene, and we need the help of central banks and financial regulators. We have to intervene to dampen those market signals, penalise uh, investment uh, in fossil fuels, and reward investment in ESG. But the, the market's going a very different, in a very different direction.
4: Demand for fossil fuels. I'm asking you if there's a price that reveals climate. Change
2: at this point, no.
1: Since you've mentioned Mr. Carney, one of my uh, Uh, anti-heroes. He's a wonderful example of another Tony Downs quote, namely that the elite's environmental deterioration is the common man trying to improve his lot. Okay? And so Mr. Carney, most of the developed world sit and tell six and a half billion people, "No, no, you cannot have the same standard of living we do."
2: It's terrible. And, and this also feeds into zero growth or yeah. no growth yeah. uh, uh, type arguments, which uh, they don't—they don't—you know—they don't go down very well when yeah. you try to make those arguments in the developing world. Understandably. Yeah.
3: Yes, sir. Uh, Thank you. I I have a uh, puzzle. Uh, We we are talking about the globalization. uh, When you you know you pinpoint China, you know into the in the in the uh, presentation. But if we have this globalization, if the U.S. continue or the EU continue to outsource all these like dirty, highly polluted jobs to not may not be china it could be in any emerging market cool. vietnam india it, it won't solve the problem if you have the globalization just you know shifting the location so what is your take on that you know this is one the first question the second is like you know related to the previous you know panel they talk about the solar energy in china they heavily subsidize artists like company they produce solar panel so, do you worry about this national concern? Since you know you you know highlight China in the uh, your discussion, so tell us. You know my two questions. Thank you.
2: I mean, the Chinese case is fascinating because clearly there is a great deal of investment uh, going into what is called green or renewable technology, and that's part of the reason that China doesn't get criticised at yeah. COP and, and other events. Uh, China's investment in electric vehicles, uh, I think, leads the world, but it clearly doesn't make much difference to uh, overall emissions if people are charging their Teslas or Tesla knock-offs with electricity generated by burning uh, Australian or other coal. And so one has to, I think, look beyond those investments in solar or electric vehicles and ask, what is the overall Chinese energy strategy? And at the moment, uh, it is an energy strategy to burn uh, more coal each year than the year before, uh, with a promise to stop doing that by the end of this decade and be a net zero. 2060, and that promise is something about which I'm highly sceptical because China is heading rapidly towards a period of lower growth than the system has been accustomed to for demographic reasons and also financial reasons. Uh, under those circumstances, it seems unlikely that the regime can simultaneously uh, achieve the, a rapid transition away uh, from from burning coal. It'd be very un- uh, unlikely, to my mind, that that would happen in the 2030s. Just as a had- another factoid I read
1: yesterday or the day before, India is projecting an 8% increase in coal consumption next year.
0: So one final question.
5: Hello, I'm um, kind of curious. So I work in corporate, I work for Alverson Safeway, and I do a lot of our economic modeling when it comes to a lot of our commodity goods. I'm wondering wondering if, if it's possible to defeat that doomsday kind of narrative if we change the framework of looking at it from an empathy perspective. Because when we make all of these changes, the first people that are affected are the disenfranchised. And I feel as though if we. Look at it from that framework, and how we and how the disenfranchised are the first ones to be affected. For example, where we are changing our our 100% recyclability for all of our milk packaging packaging, that's going to increase yeah. our cost by one dollar by 2025. I think if we looked at it from that narrative and also have empathy, I think that we can also kind of cut that doomsday model in half. And it's more of a statement, but I also kind of want to see what you guys' thought on that is.
1: Well, far be it from a physicist to try to do psychology, <laughs> but I think when the chips are down, empathy doesn't buy you very much. Even before the whole climate discussion started, the developed world did not do very much at all for the developing world. And as we say in mathematics, uh, the climate problem just gets reduced to a previously unsolved problem. So um, I don't think empathy gets you very much when the chips are down.
2: I'll offer the following observation. There's a crowding out problem. Uh, The core argument of doom is that disasters will happen, Uh, and they come in multiple forms. There are geological disasters entirely unrelated to the discussion we're having on climate. Uh, There are geopolitical disasters that would far far eclipse anything that's plausible in uh, in the IPCC reports, the nuclear war scenario, which is suddenly, once again, one that we have to discuss. The greatest problem that strikes me about the endless debate on climate is that it crowds out discussion of far more pressing and, and, and alarming dangers that can kill people far more rapidly than climate change is likely to do. And it was summed up for me three years ago by a conference dominated by discussion of climate as a pandemic was already sweeping the world. If there's one thing we've learned from the, the doom industry, and I'm sure you'd, you'd agree with this, Ron, that the, the, the people whose profession is predicting the end of the world generally pick the wrong disaster to predict. <laughs> and as they encourage attention to be devoted to their pet disaster, the other disaster is sneaking up on you, and it's sneaking up a lot faster than climate change, and COVID-19 illustrated that point, uh, but a nuclear war would uh, be an even more terrible illustration of the point, and this is really why I'm here, not to engage in some uh, debate about the the changing climate, climate of the world changes its a historical reality, but we need to recognise that there are other disasters that may befall us, and I. I really don't want that enormous earthquake to happen in California right now. But if it did, you'd really know what I was talking about because that would be a disaster, entirely unrelated to climate, that would instantly do vastly more damage in a really short space of time than all the climate change the IPCs is projecting.
0: Well, I think that's the end of our time. Please help me applaud their, our wonderful panelists and yeah. their presentation. And thank you all for being here
4: i also applaud Ron for for the moderation. We'll we'll reconvene here in 10 minutes uh, for Matt Ridley's uh, keynote talk. So see you soon.